people, whoops, uh, watching people, uh, people pop on, and I think to myself, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I feel always very touched that uh, people have invited us into their, into their homes. I used to see, I, I used to say things like, I see people in their boxes, but I don't see people in their boxes. I see people in their homes, and you are looking at me. <laughs> Uh, in a way, in a box. I am in a box today. I'm in an, a room upstairs at Spirit Rock because on my street this morning, they are replacing some underground wiring and all of the electricity is off. So I live 20 minutes from Spirit Rock and here I am. But the reason that I like so much being here, let me now fix it so I see all of you, not just me. Uh, what do I do to see that view? There it is. Gallery. Uh, that's my favorite look. There you are. And uh, I I really feel like this, this piece of our meeting where I see, oh, there's so-and-so, and there's so-and-so. Oh, I haven't seen Nancy Iris in a long time. And there's Bromini, and there's, uh, there's Diane, and there's Kathy. And I feel with the people I do know, uh, there's Jeff, people I haven't seen in a while. I said, whoa, there they are. And I actually feel, and I think you do too, oh, good, there's so-and-so, oh, good, there's so-and-so. And then there are people who I don't know. I think, oh, I don't know that person. And there's somebody else. I don't know them. I'm so glad to see them. And I really feel differently, actually, than three years ago when we started this being online more than uh, we had ever done before. Uh, that uh, I was waiting for the time when we'd get to be ball back in person again. And it's shifted in these three years. When I meet you somewhere in person, I'll be very happy about it. But in the meantime, this seems to me so wonderful that you've all invited me into your home this morning. And it's clearly not my home because uh, uh, because of the, the, the PG&E outside my window. I was very happy to have Spirit Rock let me in. There's nobody here. It's a really quiet time. So you look around and look at the people for a minute. See who you know. Oh, we are just now moving on to two pages worth of people in homes inviting us in. All the better. Then you can switch to another page and see who else is there. This morning, Monique is helping to host us. So uh, in a minute, uh, but I'll leave it quiet just before Monique comes on. In a minute, Monique, come, out, come on audio and say some things. In the meantime, everybody there, welcome. And look at each box, look at each room, no box, we don't have boxes, we have people inviting us into their homes. Look in each home and say to yourself, I know this person, may they be well, or I don't know this person, I hope they're well. Just do that for, for uh, a minute, and then Monique will take it from there.
Yes, wonderful. Beautiful. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Wednesday morning meditation group here at Spirit Rock Online. My name is Monique, and I'll be your host for today's gathering, as Sylvia said. You can reach me through chat if you have any questions on information on classes or anything else by selecting Spirit Rock Monique. Um, and we also ask that you please refrain from private chatting with teacher during the program as it can be a little bit distracting. As many of you may know, this Wednesday meditation class has been meeting consistently for over 30 years. So it's really wonderful to be here. Um, before we dive deeper into our program, I have a few announcements to share regarding some upcoming programs at Spirit Rock. Saturday, April 22nd, on land or online, we have The Time Is Now, Showing Up for the Planet, an Earth Day gathering with James Baraz, Rhonda V. McGee, Mark Coleman, Kristen Barker, and Lila June. And then on Sunday, April 23rd, online, we have We Are Nature, Exploring the Body Through the Four Elements with Don Maruccio. And we have a three-week online series starting April 28th called Collective Kindness with J.D. Doyle. And I'll post those all in the chat for your reference. And I'll also post a few Zoom tips. And then I will hand it back over to Sylvia to continue our program. Thank you so much. Well, here we are. And I'm really happy to be back here again. And I'm here three weeks in a row now. So that's a that's really a treat for me because I get to be leisurely. I get to not have to uh, think about uh oh I'm in the middle of a story and I forgot that story and another story. So I I really feel I, this gives me time to be expansive is what what I want to say. And more recently, I've been noticing that uh, there's uh, I've been thinking a lot about the effect of the pandemic and how being in uh, uh, up to now in a kind of a narrow space and not being able to see as many people or go as freely or think about where do I need a mask or not a mask, that uh, we've been kind of in a, in a um, retreat where there's a certain amount of pressure on, on in a retreat. You can't not see uh, the things that are coming up in your mind. You don't have to try very hard to catch what the gist of what your mind is teaching them, but you can't not see. And I think over the past three years, I I really feel that by uh, seeing it close up more of the time, what's going on, that I, that I've changed. The idea of changing in meditation is not new. I mean, the Buddha taught about this is the way that we purify the mind and uh, purify it of uh, afflictive habits and get to see clearly. I love to tell people that the uh, the French term for uh, mindfulness is these, well, the French translation of uh, paying attention and, and mindfulness is vision profonde. So it's, I, I love that. It's, uh, it's seeing things, it's uh, seeing clearly, but also seeing profoundly what's really true. That uh, we see things on the level of this is what's happening but really on the deeper level of what does that mean about the habits of my mind? What moves me? 
I thought I would call today's class. Um, wait, I just told I just told Monique, what lifts up your mind? What lifts up your mind? I uh, I watched a series on television recently. Uh, and the the series I'm not you know I don't have any stake in it and it, I don't know anyway the series is called it's a Netflix and it's called Emergency New York City. And it's real, um, it's real. It's not movies about emergency situations with the patients, uh, not patients, they're actors. This was, uh, it's a series that uh, was shot in a, a hospital in New York and it has eight episodes. And uh, not only, and it follows people in emergency situations through the paramedics coming to pick them up sometimes in remote places and to coming to the emergency room to having to have surgery. So you see all kinds of things. It's amazing that you can see eye surgery or heart surgery or all kinds of surgeries. And they're real people who have, they assure you many times, given their permission for these films to be shown. And the, the over, well, I, I had two takeaways from it. Sounds like I'm actually have some stake in this in this program, but I I have two takeaways from it. One is you get to really feel connected both to the uh, health workers uh, and to the people who come with their situations, because you see people who undertake to be uh, health practitioners, physicians and nurses and uh, physicians assistants and specialists and neurologists and all kinds of things. They probably take on their calling um, because they're interested in, in learning and because they have some uh, sense of really wanting to make people feel better. And you get to love them, watching them, trying to make people feel better. And I was thinking, why do I feel so good about this? And it just made me have such a sense that people could have a vocation of making people of helping people to feel better. And I think that our real, our real uh, clue to our being happy or at ease is being able to connect with other people in the general uh, uh, endeavor of making people feel better. I, anyway, I felt very uplifted by it. And also very amazed at what people can do, particularly uh, that's the first time that I saw anything have happened with um, uh, laparoscopic surgery. So you see the 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 surgeon uh, has his or her hands on instruments like Nintendo instruments over here. And you watch over there on the screen. She or he is watching the screen and cutting here and pasting there and doing all this stuff. And I thought, we can do such amazing things. We can do such amazing things. And the the other side of that, uh, which is, that's the, the, the lead up to what I wanted to begin with, is the other side of that is, we can do such amazing things and fix something in an amazing way is we figured out so many things and we didn't figure out how to have a peaceful world. And that always just, 
just startles me so much. How come we didn't figure out how to stop fighting with each other? How come we didn't figure out how to stop being held sway in the force of greed and hatred and delusion? I've, I found yesterday, I was looking for what did I want to read that, um, that connects us to what the Buddha said because there's nothing in that program more in, that has anything to do with that. And I found the heart of Buddhist meditation. Heart of Buddhist meditation is uh, by Nyanapanika Tara. Nyanapanika was born in Germany He's a, he was a German Jew uh, and uh, 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 got interested in Buddhism when he was in college and in graduate school and wanted to study and wanted to go to Sri Lanka and study, wanted to ordain as a monk. Um, and then he didn't go because they were, uh, uh, he had a mother. He had an elderly mother and his father was dead. And he didn't want to leave his elderly mother on her own. And the Second World War was just starting and lead up to it. And then he realized he was as a Jew imperiled. And he went to Sri Lanka and he took his mother with him. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons I like him so much. Took his mother with him and he ordained. And he became uh, a uh, Maha, not only a Tara, T-H-E-R-A, which means a Buddhist teacher became a Mahatera, which means like the chief of the of teachers, and uh, and his name, his monk name was Nyanapanika. So he's Nyanapanika Mahatera, takes his mother with him, goes to Sri Lanka, and by twenty or thirty years later, he's the head of the Buddhist Publication Society. And he wrote a number of books. And uh, this this is the first book. I have it written in the, uh, in the margin of this, that this was the first book that Jack Cornfield suggested that I and my fellow new teacher trainers, teacher trainees in 1985, he asked us to read. And uh, the people in that class with me in that first teacher trainer class were uh, Jack teaching and myself and uh, Charter Rogel and Howard Cohn and James Barras and Anna Douglas. So we were we were class number one of the teacher trainers that now have each gone through four or five year trainings. And this is the first page. It's all uh, underlined, so I won't read you the whole thing. In the present era of two world wars, history seems to repeat its lessons to humanity with a voice more audible than ever because of the turbulence and suffering that, alas, are generally equivalent with political history affect increasingly larger sectors of mankind directly or indirectly. Yet it does not appear that these lessons have been learned any better than before. To a thoughtful mind, more gripping and heart-rending than all the numerous single facts of suffering produced in recent history is the uncanny and tragic monotony 
of behavior that prompts mankind to prepare again for a new bout of that raving madness called war. Isn't that an amazing first sentence? That raving madness called war. The same old mechanisms, mechanism as it work again, the interaction of greed and fear, lust for power or desire to dominate are barely restrained by fear, the fear of man's own vastly improved instruments of destruction. So this is the end of World War II. Well, the writing is 1962, and he's writing in Sri Lanka looking back. The fear of man's desire to dominate are barely... the, the Lust and power or desire to dominate are barely restrained by fear. Fear, however, is not a very reliable break on man's impulses and constantly poisons the atmosphere by creating a feeling of frustration, which again will fan the fires of hate. But humans still bungle only with the symptoms of their malady remaining blind to the sources of illness, which is no other than the roots of everything evil pointed out by the Buddha, greed, hatred, and delusion. To the sick and demented world of us, there comes an ancient teaching of eternal wisdom and unfailing guidance, the Buddha Dhamma, the doctrine of the enlightened one with its message of power and healing. I just love that, the madness called uh, called war. We still haven't figured out how to do it. We still haven't figured out how to do it. And there he said, greed, hatred, and delusion are what's the cause of it all. And how are we, how are we going to deal with it? How are we going to recognize the what in us pushes us to not to not address whatever greed, hatred, and delusion is in us. I think to myself often about what are we really doing here? And I've been telling people uh, more and more, you've probably heard me say before, I'm trying to sweeten my mind. I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to make my mind habituated to kindness as if, if I habituated mind to kindness, it could make a difference in the world. But I have to remain... I have to decide that it could make a difference in the world. It hasn't made a difference enough yet. But what's the alternative to say it's all over and just, you know, we're just going to watch the end of the world happen with greed and hatred and desire? Or are we going to just say, okay, I'm going to try to calm down and see more clearly and connect more fully? I could have called this talk um, Concentration clarity, and connection. I decided I would make my own, like, uh, and the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the uh, Five Hindrances. This could be the C, the C, the three C's, connect, uh, concentration and clarity and connection. I actually thought we would do our, uh, our, um, meditation on that today. Well, we will. Let's do a little bit now of it, and then we'll do a longer period of it in a little while. But I, w- I want to say that um, 
the other book I brought along to read to you is called Tranquility and Insight. And it's talking about uh, mindfulness. It's 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 was written fifty years ago, and it makes a point that what the Buddha taught is a combined meditation of concentration and clarity, and how to how to how to um, practice concentration and clarity in tandem with each other. And I have been teaching recently. I want to say more about concentration and clarity and connection, that that uh, that that's the really important part. And I'd like us to do a mini meditation on concentration and clarity and uh, connection first, and then talk about it a little bit more, and then do a longer period of time. But there might be some questions about the three kinds of meditation. So make yourself comfortable. We'll do it all with the breath. We could do it with other body sensations, but we'll try to do it all with the breath. It's good to sit up if you can comfortably. If it's not what you can comfortably do, sit however comfortably you can. And notice as you sit that your breath comes in and out and in and out. If you take some longer breaths in and then out, you'll find that that soothes the mind and slows down your pulse rate a little bit. Smile a little bit because that relaxes the muscles and slows the breathing.
And now for maybe three minutes, I'll, t- I'll time it. So it's a short meditation. But for three minutes, see if you can really be with the breath in and out, in and out, trying very much to bring the attention one after another to the breath. It's a little bit more effort than sitting easily, letting whatever arise. This is really developing concentration, breath in and breath out. It's almost as if you're anticipating the breath out and in. So you're right there with it. And I'll try, I I will check the time. See if you can do that in and out and in and out as much as you can. We'll do that for three minutes and then I'll tell you to do something else.
now as you continue to watch to be with your breath and feel it instead of staying with breath in breath out breath in breath out as the whole of your experience see if you can let your uh, keen discriminating ability notice the space between the breath in and the breath out breath in comes in fills up the lungs and then it changes its direction it goes out the in-breath ends it doesn't become the out-breath it ends and then the out-breath begins and then it ends and then the in-breath begins see if you can find even smaller parts than that in-breath comes in and it ends and then the out-breath begins and that ends. So there are four discernible parts. The in-breath in, ending, in-breath out, ending, and a little bit more space between that out-breath and the next in-breath. For the next two or three minutes, see if you can be more discriminating. We are, in meditation language, sharpening the clarity of vision, seeing what's really it's not just breathing is happening, but there are tiny parts of it. Let's do that for three minutes or so. And feel how that feels. Your heart, your mind, and your muscles. And we'll try, as we continue to sit and feel the breath arising and passing away, imagine that as each breath goes out from you, it goes out with a wish. May you be well. May you be well. May you be well. 
that you be well. And in, in the place of the words, may Sylvia, you accidentally muted yourself. Can you unmute? Look at what, oh, there you go. Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, wait a minute. Let's do this. Let's do this. How could I have done that? Well, I could have, obviously, I did it. Let's do this. Open your eyes. And let's do let's talk for a minute about the 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 difference between meditation A and B. Being trying to be really concentrated and trying to not be so globally concentrated and trying to be a little bit more um fine-pointed in your experience. So I'd love it if a couple of people would say, I, this is my experience with A and this is my experience with B. So you have to tap your response if you will share it. Think, think, think. Ah, Nancy. Nancy, you have to unmute. What's that? Yeah. Um, so first, it's so good to see you, Sylvia. Um, I really noticed the first one was very relaxing. The second one with bringing more attention to each part of it, just noticing different shapes of the meditation, but also noticing how at the pause between the in-breath and the out-breath I was much less comfortable at the pause at the out-breath it just felt like I could have stayed in that pause indefinitely mm -hmm. whereas the in-breath was a harder one to pause for that's that's very helpful thank you very much so I'm remembering that and we'll talk about them all together in a minute let's see about Kristen hi y'all um, I found I was able with the second one to sort of turn off the visualize, like I kept getting visuals in the first one. I kept seeing a wave, like a wave in and out. And I kept trying to even clear that and just stay with the breath. I found it easier to clear my mind in the second one. There was something about adding that pause at the top and the bottom that I was able to really, really, really let go and clear my mind. Well, that's really wonderful. I, I'm, I'm going to hear everybody's uh, who wants to share their experience, and then I'll talk about it. That's great. Um, um, anyway, that's great. Thank you very much. Lisa Marie. Um, what I, is it maybe more of a general comment about the two the two things you introduced 
which is that um, you introduce constraints and, you know, or you might say focus. And there's a tremendous amount of relief to that for me because uh, I, particularly right now, I feel like I'm floundering a little bit in my practice and there's so like, they kind of don't know where to be. And so really narrowing it down is, is is calming in itself. Like, oh, I just need to do this one thing for three minutes. Mm, thank you very much, Jaya. Hi. Um, the first one was beautifully engaging and uh, really drew me in. And I don't believe I lost it for a second. The second one, the exchange as it went from one to the other, what, it felt so long, mm -hmm. not unbearably long, but it got me to all of a sudden think, well, is my body supposed to inhale or exhale? And of course my body knew what it had to do, but that turning around was like opening a door. It was lovely. I'm very glad to hear that. I'm also very glad to hear that people had different experiences, which doesn't surprise me. Um, anybody else want to say something about that? I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, when people when people talk about mindfulness in a generic way, what they mean is paying attention in a way that uh, is uh, um, calming enough so that the body calms down and stays steady. It's developing equanimity. And at the same time, has enough interesting in it to keep you alert. There's a book called Tranquility and Insight. It's also 30 years old and hard to find. I think my copy may be the only one extant. Uh, and about what exactly this combination of uh, over, over an overview, concentration, calming down, being steady, and at the same time, not falling asleep or not falling into uh, some sort of strange state. Um, I remember now, uh, really a long, long time ago, and I went on a fairly long retreat where Joseph Goldstein was my teacher. And I was trying very, very hard to get my mind to settle down and stay, stay present. And we were doing breath meditation, stay present with the breath and stay present with the breath. And then finally, I got to where I, uh, I could actually start to really say, stay right here and just be with the breath back and forth. And I remember uh, I discovered that it was very soothing to my mind. It was, I could relax. I didn't have to be watching every second. It was like a little bit like, uh, oh, I felt maybe like I had arm wrestled my mind into a stupor or something. I didn't actually, I thought that term later on. But my mind, suddenly I didn't have to work so hard. It's just like a buzz. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit like um, stone. But anyway, I went to see my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and I was very proud of myself. I said, uh, you know, it's great. I got it. I, I'm doing this and this and this, and my mind is so 
steady, but just steady all the time. And he said, you know, that's just a good beginning, Sylvia. You have to calm down your mind, and then you have to see what's going on there. If you calm down your mind, it's just like you just calmed it down. But there's no insight in that. It's just like taking a nap. I'm not. It's before falling asleep, but it's on the way to falling asleep. And insight isn't going to arise in that kind of mind. Does that does that make sense to people? That uh, tranquil and alert means having a means to calm the mind down, and then seeing what's there once it's calmed down. Because what you're looking for is insight. There's a long story that I could tell you about that. I wonder if I want to. It just came in my mind. Maybe I'll tell it to you. It's not so long. Uh, and then we'll go back and do the third kind of meditation. Um, a long, long time ago, uh, 30 years ago probably, I was at a retreat on on the other coast of the United States, and I was doing a lot of walking meditation in the woods. So walking meditation in the woods soothes the mind, unless you're counting how many tanagers and how many red wing this. If you're not counting what, what's out there, then you can just walk back and forth and the mind so soothes down. And I had been part of an organization at that point that... Um, I I don't have to tell you the name of the organization. It was the name of an organization, a social a, a social welfare organization, where there had been some question about whether or not a certain person in that organization had um, done something that was not right, and there were some people who felt that he had, and some people who felt that he hadn't, that it was not malpractice and. Uh, I was one of those people who, during that time, there's a lot of discussion with that person about what should happen. Oh, should anything happen? Should there be some? Anyway, I was one of the persons who really, given all the evidence and the situation, I thought really that uh, they had misbehaved in a certain way. And that I was tending when it came down to taking a vote uh, about whether they stayed in the organization or not, some sort of a censure. I was on the side of, I thought it was a mistake. And then I was walking um, by myself on the other side of the country, having a, a walking meditation back and forth in the woods, my mind getting very calm and calm and calm and walking along. And I was thinking about, it suddenly came in my mind that uh, I had been on the side. It was pretty well, you know, people pretty well equally divided. And I'd been on the side of people who thought that that person had made a mistake. And I'm walking along and I suddenly had the thought, out of the blue, because I was just walking along, I voted the way I did because I actually don't like that person. Out of the blue, I got that message, which I thought about at the time. I thought, ah, that's so incorrect. That's a terrible thing. You know, I was, I was biased, you know. And uh, at the same time, I thought to myself, 
Well, I've also also I'm uh, I'm somewhere in the North Woods in in Vermont or something, and I without a telephone thirty years ago, and I thought, well, that's all right because when I get home, I'll contact the, that organization. I'll go. I'll revisit that, and I'll clean it up, and I did. That's the end. That's the short end of the long story, but it was as if my mind had done something not purposely. I had not thought now's my chance to really get back at this person that I don't like or let them know that that I also feel that they should be censured. I thought I was operating absolutely with all my mind. And here I was walking along and my mind suddenly out of the blue, I'm walking along quietly, 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 quietly. And this insight arises that I voted the way I did because I don't like them. And uh, it had slipped by my conscious mind. I, I want to be really clear. I didn't think to myself, well, no, 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 now's my chance to get even with them. I, that would not have slipped by my my. But I thought, ah. But then I thought, well, it's okay because when I get home, even when I get out from here and to a telephone, I'm going to make some phone calls and fess up and say what that I realized I'm not going to say why I'm going to say I'm reconsidering anyway that whole situation worked out fine in the long run but it's important to me it just came in my mind at this moment to tell you that there's a lot of things that I don't actually know until my mind is ready for me to let it know do you get that story I'll tell you one more story because it caught me the same way, and it's an important story. I went on a retreat uh, early on, at least 20 years, somewhere in the 1990s. And I, I was not, I was worried because I went in a, in a stirred up mood. I had been reading in the, in the newspapers, I guess he, reading in the newspapers, maybe hearing it on TV, that there were some parents in, um, Chicago, I think, who had, uh, whose child had died of leukemia, uh, and uh, they had in their, uh, because of their devotion to certain kinds of new new age ideas, they had taken the child to Mexico to have uh, laetrile treatments for leukemia. Now, leukemia was one of the diseases that at that point was quite well taken care of by Western medicine. And uh, I heard all about all the back and forth on the TV, the courts could enter into it and the courts can't enter it. Anyway, they took their child to Mexico, the child got the laetrile treatments, and the child died. And it had just been in the mood, and I was so upset about that. And I thought to myself, I don't want to, it just stirs up my mind so much. And I got, it was, I was newly into um, transpersonal psychology and new age and uh, not quite, not before the, oh, it, I was with it, into the, into Buddhism. I was in, uh, I had gone on some retreat. Anyway, Oh no! That was I. I actually 
It was, I was, I know I was into Buddhism because I went on a retreat to Barry and I thought to myself, I'm so upset about what these parents did that uh, I hope I don't think about it on the retreat. So thinking, I hope I don't think about it on the retreat is ridiculous because then it's top of the line to think about it as soon as you sit down. I sat down and that kept on going on in my mind. How could they have done that? How could they? Have, that's so terrible. And I got really mad at New Age magazines and uh, what I thought was an unfair presentation of Western medicine. And well, how could they have done that? And and I and I went to Barry and I was sitting and sitting and I kept thinking, may this not come into my mind? May I just be with the breath? And I was so upset about it. I was thinking about it all the time. And some days into it, it suddenly occurred to me, I was sitting and in between, I'm trying to breathe in and out and in and out and in and out. Suddenly occurred to me, those parents must feel terrible. They really must feel terrible. And I had tremendous compassion for them. And I realized they did, they did what they thought was the right thing, wasn't the right thing, but they didn't do it for any reason other than their belief that it was the right thing. And I suddenly felt, felt such a, an overwhelm of compassion for them, an overwhelm of compassion for them, that people do sometimes unwise things because they, because they do, and they must feel terrible. And here I was thinking, may I not feel terrible, may not come up in my mind. I thought these parents are going to feel terrible forever about that judgment. And I felt tremendous compassion for them. And I realized that I had been so mad because I was frightened on some level that I might make a bad decision and not make right judgments for my children. And I soon, that's one of the times when I began to realize that whatever, whenever my mind is outraged about something, I am missing the fact that the situation is calling for compassion. People do outrageous things because they don't make the right decision. Sometimes that happens. But not that they have the wrong motive, necessarily. And the, both of those stories, the story about taking a walk in the woods and the story of remembering in the middle, those parents must feel terrible. Our mind corrections that are in a moment of insight because the mind has calmed itself down enough to see something clearly in that moment. So we want to calm ourselves down enough, but still be paying attention, but still be alert. Tranquil and alert. Anybody, was that clear enough? Do you see the connection between both of those stories? It's interesting to me. I think I think in terms of stories. I know I talk and I teach in terms of stories, but it's the stories that have changed my life that I suddenly realize it's not like that, it's like this. At this point in my life, um, the story that's doing me the most good and coming up the most is the story of uh, 
the man that came to Spirit Rock when I was a yoga teacher there. And I don't remember if I've told you that. So I've probably told you the story. How many people know the story of the man who came to Spirit Rock on... on uh, uh, I taught a class. You put up your hand as soon as you say, I've heard this story 20 times. <laughs> and then I won't tell it. Uh, I was teaching a class called Hatha Yoga for Older Adults. Anybody knows this story? Jashoda, you know this story? No? This might be the most important story. Brahm, no? Uh, a man came to class. This is older adults at that point. I'm, I'm uh, charmed to remember. Was for people over 55. Over 55. How many older adults are you? If you're an older adult, raise your hand. <laughs> Who else is home on a Wednesday morning? <laughs> I was teaching Hatha Yoga for older adults. So they and I was thirty-five or forty, maybe. And uh, I came to class one day. It was a whole big class, uh, and uh, a man came in on the kind of half crutches that. Uh, you associate, you might associate with Yitzchak Perlman. So they weren't that kind of, they were the kind of half crutches. And he came in with another person and uh, I went to greet him as I always did, a new person in the class. And he said, um, uh, I'd like to try that. I heard from my friend here that you're a really good yoga teacher and I'm not sure I can do it, but I'd like to try it. And I certainly greeted him and said, listen, I'm going to be sitting up in the front or standing or whatever, and I don't go around and fix people up. You just listen to the instructions and do whatever you can and change the instructions and modify them or make up different ones in order to accommodate what you can do, and I'll be up there. And so he lowered himself to the floor, and he did a whole class. As far as I knew, he was there and I was here. And I am, and my custom was to go through all the motions of the practice, and people did the best adaptation to that that they could. And when I finished the class, I went uh, and I said goodbye to various people, and I saw that he was gathering himself up, and I went to thank him for coming to the class, and he thanked me, and he said, uh, I, "You're a really good yoga teacher." And uh, I'm glad I came, and I won't come back anymore. It's too hard for me. So uh, I said, well, I'm glad you came. And uh, he started to he started out to the door. And this is probably if I was in my if I was 40, it's it's 45 years ago. As he was in the door frame, just going out, he turned around and he said, uh, I just wanted to tell you that I was a member of the United States Olympic running, rowing team in 1904. And then he left. And so what do you think of this? I, I, I thought at the moment, I thought to myself, I need to remember that. that, that, that sometimes you talk to a, a, a teacher or a lineage passer on from the... People will say, I uh, I got my lineage passed on to me from this or that um, spiritual teacher. 
And I thought to myself, that I have to remember that. That's an important thing. And it got, got filed away somehow in my mind. It's like you hear something and you think, wow. It's like a moment, like being in the woods and thinking, I voted against that person, not because of that thing, but because I I had it in for them anyway. I didn't like them anyway. There's something that I didn't know, and then I know it, and I can't unknow it. Does that make sense? So I'm thinking about him a lot these days because there's a lot that I can't do anymore. Um, uh, physically, I can't. there's a lot that I can't do anymore. Uh, I keep thinking of that man who was in the United States Olympic rowing team. Um, and that that had been a passage of knowledge, but your mind has to be, theoretically, your mind has to be alert enough for it to go in and really make a dent in your heart. Sometimes it does, like a, a dent in my heart. The crack of my heart happened while walking in the Vermont woods quietly, or while uh, sitting on retreat at uh, Barry and calming my mind so insight and wisdom could arise, or standing in the gym at the College of Marin 45 years ago and have someone tell me something and think, ding, remember that. Does that make sense? Maybe one more example that uh, one of my teachers, is, uh, who's no longer living, was a, uh, a renowned rabbi named uh, Zalman Shakta Shalomi. And uh, he said two things. He said, first of all, uh, when, when I met him, he was very well known. He was kind of a guru in... In, uh, he was kind of a Jewish guru with all the gurus uh, that people were interested in in the 1970s and 80s and 90s were mostly gurus from Japan and gurus from India. And he was a guru from Austria who came as a young man and then became quite a famous rabbi in this country. And he said... Um, there are different kinds of gurus. There are guru, and people really thought he was a tremendous visionary and understanding. And he'd say, I'm not really, say there's all kinds of gurus. There's upu gurus and sat gurus. And an upu guru is something, is someone who knows a few things. And a sat guru is someone who really is, um, Knowledge, has wisdom. He said, I'm not up there. I'm kind of in the middle beginning of the minor gurus. And I'm going from uh, a small a small K, I know some things, to I'm hoping I'll get to a big K, knowing. So if you think about people who know, they know until they really know. And I had that in my mind at the, at, when I first met him, and we were friends for a long time until he died, actually. Um, so that in when the Buddhists talk about the cultivation of wisdom, I think you get a little wisdom, and then you understand it more, and then you understand it more, and then you understand it more. I understand the first noble truth now 
way better than I understood it a year ago or three weeks or two years ago or whatever. I am always understanding it better. I'll come back and talk about the first noble truth. There was one more thing I wanted to say about that before I forget what it was that I wanted to say. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, it's probably just when, when probably I was going to say, when I know something, uh, I like to think, I know this better now. Uh, it's knowing in an irrevocable way, like the, we come across it in Buddha stories, like when the Buddha was sitting under the bow tree and said, I'm not going to get up from here. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's an apocryphal story, but but the idea that you could know something he could know in his body, that it would be possible to calm his mind so much that it would not be affected by all the kinds of thoughts and worries and fears and lusts that might assail him. He had ultimate confidence. I think it's it's always a uh, it's an ongoing job to maintain wisdom. Oh, we'll come back to those are enough stories, but I I hadn't told you that before about the. Uh, okay, I think about it a lot these days because uh, clearly I'm get I am in that stage of my life where I think, wow, this is about it. Um, anyway. There was one more kind of, when when I accidentally turned off the instructions, we'll go back to that. When I accidentally turned off the instructions, the third instruction I was going to give is the instruction between calming the mind and keeping it awake, there's a, one further movement of connecting it to somebody. That if what I'm going to wake up to is the awareness that we're all in the same boat, which is the awareness that connects to compassion and turns on the compassion, then it's really the necessary third part that in early in my um, Vipassana career, in my mindfulness career, we learned about, um, we learned about developing concentration and then keeping it clear by, uh, breaking it down, making it more and more um, uh, demanding, demanding more and more attention so that learning that things arise and pass away, we would do, we'd move very slowly and feel that everything is changing, 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 changing. And look for that. We didn't in the beginning so much talk about connecting a mind that's alert and tranquil alert and alert and tranquil with wisdom and with other people and then people began in 1985 which was almost 10 years after I started to practice when people started to say about loving kindness and about metta and about connecting to other people and we have for a long time 
just been saying, well, we're going to do mindfulness practice and loving kindness practice like it's on the side or it's an extra thing or you have to decide to do it. And I have two feelings about it. Some There certainly are mindfulness, loving kindness practices that you could decide to do, like saying the names of people that you love and people that you care about, which is what we were going to do. We were going to do this breath and the breath and the breath and the breath and the breath. And then we were going to do the breath and the end of the breath and the beginning of the breath and the full of the breath and the out of the breath and the space, not because of what was in the space, but to really fine tune the attention to paying uh, to paying attention and noticing what's really hidden, what's really hidden, what's hidden in the breath in and out is that everything arises and disappears. That's really what's hidden. That's the basic thing that the Buddha said just before he died. He said, this is the most important thing. Everything that arises passes away. He said one thing after that. He said, strive on with confidence. But that was a teaching. Everything uh, transient are all conditioned things. Everything that comes up goes away. It all passes. And I think everything that... Everything hangs on that, that knowing, knowing... Everything really is impermanent. This man saying to me, I was on that team. What was the only thing that lasted from that experience was his memory of it. So that's the other piece of what's important about it. Uh, that very teacher, this is what I was going to say about the other teacher from Rabbi Zalman that I remember a lot, is he said, when something wonderful happens, file it away in your filing cabinet of your mind. Make a deposit in your bank account of your mind. And someday you're going to need to take some uh, withdrawals from that. It's like you don't use your IRA until you need it. But it's good to have an IRA when you do need it. So make a, make a deposit of that in the IRA of your mind so you can go back to it. So there is something about uh, connecting it and remembering it. And then I think what it does is it becomes cumulative wisdom. Happens that that's true. Everything that arises passes away, not just with the breath and not just with the body, but with everything and for everybody. And that's how the world continues to go on and on. I think that we should now do a period of meditation that we start, I'll give you the whole instruction and then we'll sit for 15 minutes because I'll start by, uh, well, here it is. I'd like when we sit to um, have you start again with a certain fundamental bed bedrock of just breathing in and out and in and out, kind of thing that uh, we started with that has, for many people, the effect of soothing the mind, soothe and soothe and soothe and soothe. So I'd like you to do that for a little bit, and then when you want, change over to 
seeing what the little what the little parts of that are. The breath fills up, and then it finishes filling, and then it pauses, and then it comes out, and then it finishes coming out, and then it pauses, and again and again and again. Do that for a little bit, and then when you finish that, for for however long you want to do. I'd like you to start to just n- use the breath as a metronome so that you, uh, I, I think of it as the liturgy of my heart, the people that I pray for. If I were to think of all the people in my family, is it, and I think about uh, the instructions for this have always been for, for loving kindness practice, are always pick people who are living because they, the, according to the text, you feel it more genuinely if they're living. So I don't do that because uh, you, most of you know my husband died two years ago. And for so many years, that liturgy that I said in my mind was Seymour and Michael and Liz and Peter and Emmy and so I I would start with him and I would do all my children and all of their partners and all of their children and on each breath I don't say may you be peaceful and having come to the end of suffering I say to myself may all these people that I'm now going to mention be well in every way and then on each breath I just say the name of that person if I had or used mala beads I would move a bead every time. In this way, I use the breath as the bead every time. Breath out, and I think the person, or breath in, I think the person, as if I say to the great mind, or say to myself, these are the people that I care about in the world. And then I mention and mention. And I mention their name as I breathe in in my mind and out, and I let it go. And I keep myself really alert by saying to myself, you have to change each breath. So I can't decide to linger on one person over and over and over again. Keeps the mind alert because I have to find somebody else. I wonder how many times, we'll wonder wonder when we finish, and I'll ask you about it, how many breaths if I say, I've, all right, 50 people, we surely know 50 people, 30 people, 100 people. Be easy about it. It's not a context. A contest. My experience with it is that it makes you feel happy. So, okay, that's the instruction. Calm the mind just on the breath and then sharpen the mind by doing the pieces of the breath, and then do breath after breath of people you're thinking about and coming to mind. I end up thinking of my cross the street neighbor who just got a new puppy, or my neighbor on the other side, or the supermarket, if I go long enough, the supermarket clerk that I really like, the woman who's the postmaster in my local post office. So we'll sit for 20 minutes. This is a long sit. And then we'll have a time to talk about it. There's this connection 
and clarity and concentration, clarity and connection. Let's do it.
when you want to open your eyes and look around. It's always surprising that all those people are there, isn't it? I would really like to talk with you about what was your experience with calm, concentrating and then clarifying and then connecting. What was that like? What part of it? Did you have a question? Is impermanence permanent? So uh, it'd be great. Where is Stella? Where are you, Stella? Okay. Uh, push your um, tap on your uh, so you can say something. So I was going to say that I think it's the only thing that's permanent is impermanence. Go ahead. But I want to talk to you about it. So the question about um, impermanence, one of those things is, is, you know, that's such an example of impermanence, you know, that um, thank you for offering it to us and making it available so we can all wish for you every strength and for your family and for his family. And yeah, I, I really would think of uh, oh, impermanence. Is some somebody sent me a um, a chat? Was that you that says is impermanence permanent? Was that you? Impermanence, as I think the Buddha would have said, is the only thing that there is. That nothing really exists. It's all becoming the next moment and becoming the next moment. I had a piece that I'll, I'll, I'll read, I might or well, might not now read to you because it's a, a, from um, a writer who talks about it's nothing but impermanence and becoming. Because, you know, there's nothing that you can really say about anything when someone has died that's up to the occasion, except I'm so sorry. Barbara. Yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing, Stella. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess it makes me think about my relationship with my mom. And I'm, I'm not, um, not speaking to her much these days. So thank you for helping me reflect more on that. And I, and I really, I guess I wanted to go back um, to the four parts. And I appreciate it. I've never had the breath broken up like that before. And what I got from it during the first exercise is there was a beginning and an ending to that single in-breath. And I hadn't thought of it that way before. Like that's, there's a beginning and a death. So yeah, for each part. Yeah, so it was really, it was powerful. Because mm -hmm. I it was more, it's always, I think of it as being more fluid. It's one, in-breath, out-breath. That's one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thank you for, for 
um, what's the word, making it even smaller? I don't know how to say it. Thank you, Sylvia. Well, I was thinking of it as clarifying when I was going to be clever about uh, uh, concentrating, clarifying, and connecting. But really, I'm thinking about it now that what we really want to see all the time is that everything is impermanent and there is no time other than this moment and to be awake in. And uh, I have kind of echoes in my mind of uh, what, whoever teacher, whichever teacher it was of mine who said, it's your life, Sylvia, don't miss it. Uh, like, be awake all the time which means that same thing and that the the you know the 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 more of it is that i uh to be able to see so clearly that i realize that it's not events happening to sylvia but it's events happening arising and passing away in a world full of events that's just happening and passing away that we are all in part of that we tend to, I, I, when my, when my story is personal, I tend to be back in the small world where something out there is happening to Sylvia, who's in here. And I, uh, and I realize that everything is happening. The whole world is happening, uh, to everyone and, uh, and to everyone's body and the whole, and it's, it's, um, it's an amazing thing to end up being able to say, the Buddha said, even having said that there's nothing there and everything that arises passes away, and really knowing emptiness as being the real true thing, also saying this one um, precious life, and to really uh, uh, be able to um, be grateful for this ability moment to moment to be awake and clear seeing and feel connected to it. I think that's what we want. When people say, I want to have a spiritual life, I think what they want, I think what I want to feel is that I'm connected to this whole, this whole billions of billions of things happening to everybody at the same time that are all more or less connected to each other. Everything happens because of everything else. Everything happens and passes away. Jeff said, "Ancient, wait a minute, Jeff. You had a, you had a chat that I missed. Where are you, Jeff? Where are you, Jeff? There he is. But is okay, Jeff. Hold on. I want to ask you that. But Sarah Verick is there in the corner, and she's not in the corner. She's in her house. And I want to talk to Sarah because I haven't seen her in a long time. But hold on." Go, Sarah. Thank you. Um, it's really great to be here. Um, so my mother, who was 97, uh, died about three, three weeks ago. And so this experience for me today, um, was really different than it would have been for me four weeks ago um, because I have spent the last three weeks connecting with people. Um, my family, 
um, my friends, but also her friends and, you know, telling them that she's gone. And it's just been like for the past three years, I've been a happy little hermit and (laughs) not really that super connected with people. And so for the past three weeks, I have really had to kind of step up and because I seem to be the one in the family who is the communicator and who knows who my mom's friends were. Um, I was very close to my mom. I spent a lot of time with her in the last three years, which has been just really, really wonderful. And she was ready to go. And, um, but the connecting, I'm just, this has just been very profound for me today um, to just kind of slow down because I've been like, oh yes, I have to think of this person and that person. And so today I was able to think of those people in a kind of a different way. And so I really, really appreciate this opportunity to um, kind of revisit those connections that I've been making and, you know, um, put it in the context of sending well wishes out to mm-hmm. all of them. They're all, they're all grieving. You know, my mother was very beloved by a lot of people. Mm. And so, yeah. You know, I think to myself sometimes, thank you for, first of all, I'm sorry for your loss, of course. And I'm glad for the tremendous time that you spent with your mother mm-hmm. in all this. I'm not glad she lasted so long. I know. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm glad to see you again. So thank you. Thank you. And, and wait a minute. Now, there's Rivka. What happened to... Rifka, you go because there there was a piece of scripture from Jeff. What happened to the scripture, Jeff? Jeff, uh, I was just I just added a, a a poem that I like a lot about this topic to the chat for people to enjoy. I had no other comment. Tell me it, and then I'm going to talk to Rifka. Mm-hmm. No, I don't hear you. Don't. Oh, the old scriptures contain an answer, the quality of which is obscure to all, but uh, it's got something else there. Wise. Yeah. In a short time, it will be long ago. The old man listening to the rain reflects, you only get so many summers. Maybe the last one was the last one. Not sure, but the aching joints remind him alive now. Thanks, Jeff. And Rivka. It's interesting. So many people have so much, so many issues with mothers. And I I know I had one too. And now that my mother is gone, I actually remember the I heard fondly in many ways and think of the positive things we did together. She taught me her words 
her things, she would always give people gifts and it annoyed me. And now I do that. And so it's, <laughs> it's very funny. But what I was thinking, what came to me during this meditation, which I thought was very interesting, what you call the liturgy of the heart. Is that what you call that? I, I may have, yeah. I did. I wrote that down. That was, um, you said liturgy of the heart. And you spent a breath on thinking of each person that you were wishing well. And if what was interesting, my experience was that as I thought of each person who was suffering, and I pray for a number of people every day for health and do several different types of practices for for wellness and Tonglin and other things, um, as well as Jewish practices, um, it turned into a gratitude practice. I felt myself being very grateful for the life I have as I thought all these other people's lives who are suffering. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. And I saw how loving kindness can turn into a gratitude practice. I have not that. that connection before. I love that. Thank you very much. I'm looking around at all the people that I know and don't know. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what happens when I look. We have two minutes. So in this two minutes, look at the people and see if when you look at somebody, you, you feel, I actually feel in my heart. I'm sure you do too. When I look at somebody, I look at Sarah. I haven't seen Sarah in many years, uh, but I'm happy to see you again. So you actually feel ding, ding, you know, like it. it there's an echo in your heart when you see somebody that you recognize, isn't there? While you're looking around. And next week, if you're here again, even if you didn't know anybody before you came today, you'll recognize somebody just had a chat. I would have read it, but uh, it, it disappeared. But it said but something about when we forget. You can read it in the chat. I can't. Oh, yes, I can. Oh, yes, I can. There you go. Even when we don't feel connected, we are connected. Remembering this can really help me when I'm feeling down. Thank you all for being here. Thank you all so much for vulnerability today. Thank you, thank you. Oh, I'm thrilled. Now I see how I can, but no, I'm better off. <laughs> I'm more concentrated if I'm not reading the chat. I really can't do two things at the same time well. So, but I can read it afterwards. So what, what I, uh, when I have time and when I remember, I like to say, may all the nourishment, any nourishment that we took from being together today, all of us from sharing with each other, from just being with each other. May we feel that quality in our heart of well-being from having been here and thought and learned together. May we all take that into the world and offer it through the way we are in the world, through the next supermarket cashier that we meet and the next dentist that we meet and the next anyone that we meet. May we make a gift of our own goodwill to them, through them, to all beings. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.